So all of us are familiar with repetition in our lives, right? You can think of things that are repeated. Some are good, uh, some not so good, some uh, helpful, some annoying. Uh, One example would be uh, that song that gets stuck in your head, Baby Shark, right? If you don't know what that is, just thank God for it and don't Google it later, right? The same thing over and over and over again. And now that I said it, those of you who know the song, it's stuck in your head the rest of the day, I'm sorry. That would be annoying repetition, maybe something a little more serious, um, but, but discouraging would be that bad habit that you've been trying to break for years, Right? Or just the routine of everyday life sometimes can, can wear on you. Repetition can be burdensome, but it can also be extremely helpful. Take the, the trained classical musician who has spent countless hours playing the same scales over and over and over again, mastering tempo and technique so that They can play beautiful pieces of music at will. Or take the trained athlete, take the baseball player, major league baseball player, the same swing, working on it, tweaking it, batting practice for years and years and years from a young age into adulthood so that they can perfect their craft. And so repetition can be frustrating and annoying, but it can also be a wonderful tool in our lives. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, it may seem like there's a lot of repetition of these themes since Genesis chapter 12 where we met Abraham and Sarah or Abram and Sarai to now. We've seen the same repeated theme in their stories. God speaks, he calls, he gives his promise, they believe, then they mess it up, And God speaks again and shows them his grace. God speaks, they believe, they mess it up, and God speaks again. The same theme over and over and over again. And it's interesting because we're also men, some of us are walking through Galatians, and in God's providence, several times as we've studied Galatians, the same passage that we're in in Genesis, that Sunday, the Saturday before, we are actually discussing because Paul's referencing it in Galatians. There's this repetition of these themes. And the temptation may be, oh man, here we go again. We're talking about how Abram needs faith. We're talking about the promises of God. Is this not the same sermon? We can think of it as that sort of annoying kind of stuck-in-your-head song repetition. But I'd submit to you that actually God is doing something for us here. I I don't presume to know what it is. But for whatever reason, God wants us to hear these repeated themes. And less like that annoying song, it's more like that trained musician. So that we can learn these core truths of the gospel. I was talking to Eric and Marie before this about this concept. And they said one of their former pastors said this. I love this. I wish I could call it my own, but it's not. I forgot the guy's name. But he said repetition is God's highlighter. It's the way he emphasizes things for his people. Martin Luther talked about the need for So repeatedly preaching and proclaiming and emphasizing the simple message of the gospel to a congregation. He said that it should be pounded into our heads continually so that we can learn it. And that's what God is doing for us this morning. And we're seeing some of these same themes again but with with new aspects and new nuances. 
And so what's happening in these chapters? We're taking a big chunk of scripture this morning. We're looking at really 42 verses. We didn't read all of, all of chapter 17 in the first 15 verses of chapter 18. And what we see is God appears again to Abram, speaks to him, reminds him of the covenant promise that he called him to in chapter 12, confirmed in chapter 15. Then he gives him a sign of that covenant, the sign of circumcision. He also promises him that a son will be born, and we get the name of the son, Isaac, son of laughter, within a year. So God responds to that faithfulness and that reminder with obedience. Then in chapter 18, God leaves at the end of chapter 17. He comes back, but in chapter 18, he comes back in a very unique way surrounding a meal. And the purpose of his return to Abram and Sarah is to confirm and assure them of the promise with his very presence. And so as we sum all of this up, these 42 verses up, um, in in one way to think about these things, let me just give you two sentences that we're going to work through this morning. The first is this, chapter 17. God's faithfulness motivates obedience. That's chapter 17. And then verse 18 We'll look at the first 15 verses. God's presence assures us of his promises. God's faithfulness motivates our obedience. God's presence assures us of his promises. So let's jump into chapter 17 this morning. God's faithfulness motivates obedience. Look at verse 1 again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Let's stop right there. Immediately we see two things in these first few verses. We see God's self-declaration. He tells Abram who he is. But we also see a command. And notice at the very beginning of Verse 1, what does, what does Moses tell us? He doesn't just say, God appeared and said, I'm God Almighty. He reminds us of Abram's age. It's a contrast here. Abram is 99 years old. But God is Almighty. That word for, that name for God is El Shaddai. Maybe you've heard that before. It's used five times in Genesis. Four of the uses are attached to the promise of children. You see what, what Moses is reminding readers of here, what God is doing here, is giving this contrast. Abram is 99 years old. The idea of him being a father, and as later we'll see Sarah, who is 90 years old, the, the idea of them having children is seemingly absurd, but God is almighty. That's the declaration. The Apostle Paul gives commentary on chapter 17 in Romans 4. Sometimes pastors will ask, hey, what commentary are you using? This is a gr- Genesis 17 is great because it's like, well, the Apostle Paul wrote a commentary on it. And so that's the best one. And listen to what he says, Romans 4, 19. He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Paul minces no words. Moses is like, Abraham's 99 years old. Paul's like, he might as well be dead. Since he was about 100 years old. 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Immediately we are reminded that God loves to display his power over and above the impossible situations and the efforts of man. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. So we see God's power here, but we also are reminded of God's grace. Because remember what just happened in chapter 16. This is 13 years earlier. We know that the end of chapter 17 says Ishmael's 13 years old when he was circumcised. But Abram and Sarai once again tried to take matters into their own hands. And it turned out into a disaster. It wreaked havoc on their family. They sinned against Hagar. But God appears again to them in his faithfulness and his grace even after their rebellion. So he gives this self-declaration in the midst of an impossible, seemingly impossible situation. And then, we're still in verse 1, here's what he tells Abram to do. Walk before me and be blameless. He's calling him to obedience. God still has a plan for Abram. What does it mean to walk before God? Essentially, he's saying, live, Abram, live your everyday life before my face. Live as if every aspect of your life is for my glory. You live, Abram, you live, Christian, we live before the audience of one. Whether we're at church, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're in our own thoughts, live and walk before me. And he says, and be blameless, walk in righteousness. This is a call to obedience. And we mentioned it in the prayer already. How does Abram respond to this? He is, I believe, in awe of God's grace, continuing grace, continuing reminders of his faithfulness. So he responds with reverence and he falls on his face in awe that God would speak to him. That's the right response to the word of God. And so we see this call to obedience. Then we get this reminder of the promise, this repetition. But we, we're given some new aspects. Look, look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your, your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring and after you. And so we get this reminder. Remember, we've seen it in chapter 12. When God calls Abram, he's going to bless him. He's going to give him children. He's going to give him land. We saw him remind Abram of this in chapter 13. After Lot leaves, he shows him the land and says, here's what I'm going to give you. We saw it in chapter 15 when the official covenant is cut between God and Abram. And now in 17, that's four times if you're counting, we get this reminder again. Why the reminders? Well, you understand, right? It's hard for us to learn simple things. So God in his grace continually reminds us of his promises. I am not a plant person. Any plant people in here? Not at all. Except I like, I like cactuses, cacti, and succulents because they just do their thing. I don't know how it works, right? But if you give me a plant and you're like, take care of this, it's going to be dead in a week, right? You can't just leave it there. 
You have, it needs sun, it needs nourishment, it needs good rich soil, it needs to be watered. And the same is true with Abram's faith, and the same is true with us. And so God in his grace gives us these reminders of the simple truths of his faithfulness to us that then in turn motivates us to walk before him. Now notice some new aspects here. The biggest thing is a new name, right? It's been so hard. I'm so happy that we're at this part in Genesis because now I'm not going to call him Abram, Abraham, or Sarah, Sarai. He is Abraham now. Now a name change meant a change in status and it meant a change in circumstance. And so this is a reminder to Abram, and we'll see later, to, to Sarai, who will be called Sarah, that God is pledging himself to them to keep his promises to them. But notice also it's a statement of power. I can't walk up to Sam and say, hey, Sam, just to let you know, from now on, I'm going to call you Jim. You could say, you can do that, but my name is Sam. You don't have the power to change my name. God, on the other hand, does have the power to change his name. And so he declares, you are now, you were Abram, which meant exalted father. Now you're Abraham, the father of nations. We're getting closer to the son being born and the fulfillment of this promise being revealed in a new way. And notice what what God says in verse 5. Look at the tense in verse 5. He says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Past tense. Now if you're paying attention, Abram has one son, not through Sarah, Ishmael. That's it, no other children. But what does God say? I have already made you the father of a multitude of nations. Is that a grammatical error? No. It's a theological statement. Because when God says something is done, it's done even when it's not done yet. You understand what he's telling Abraham here. And then he summarizes this covenant and this promise in verse 8. He says this, I will be their God. That's the summary of this promise to Abram, is that I am building a people from you, and from you the Savior of the world will come and redeem a people, and I will be their God. I have been faithful to you, Abram, and I will continue to be faithful. So he gives them this new name, but there's also this new emphasis on obedience as a result of believing the promises of God. He's already said, you need to walk before me in blamelessness and righteousness. You need to obey my commands. We're about to see him give the sign of circumcision that Abraham will need to obey. And this leads us to think for a moment about our understanding of obedience. We, we have to ask ourselves an important question. Do I have a proper understanding of obeying God? Because there seems to be two extremes One extreme says, I obey God so that he will be faithful to me. Maybe that's because we're used to just working with employers and earning a paycheck, right? You do your job well and you earn a paycheck. And so maybe we just transfer that over and say, if I, if I work for God, if I obey God, then he will be faithful to me. But do you realize that's not the order of what's happening in Genesis chapter 12 through 17 or anywhere in the Bible, is it? We don't work, we don't obey so that God will be faithful to us. 
We're not trying to earn a paycheck. We couldn't earn it anyways. We're dead in our sins. So that's one misunderstanding of obedience. But then if you go to the other side, there's another misunderstanding that says, well, obedience doesn't really matter because God is faithful to me. So it it doesn't matter if I obey God or not. He is faithful. He's going to keep his promises. It sounds real spiritual, doesn't doesn't it? So I can do what I want. We were talking about this yesterday in our Galatians study, and Connor Mack brought up a, a great point. He said, imagine how that would work in a marriage. You think that would go over well? Well, we've already made this irrevocable covenant. You've already committed yourself to me as my spouse, so now... I don't really have to care about being faithful to you. I can do whatever I want. That would be an unhealthy marriage that would not last long. And so we don't obey so that God will keep his promises to us, nor do we ignore obedience and use God's faithfulness as an excuse for our disobedience. So then how does it work? Well, this is what Genesis 17 in the story of Abraham shows us. Because God is faithful to us, we then have the motivation and the power to obey him. I love how the Apostle Paul sums it up in Colossians 2.6. A wonderfully short memory verse for you. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do you hear that? Therefore, because God has been faithful to you in Christ... Because he's purchased your salvation and you've received that as a gift. Now what do you do? You walk in him. You live before him. You obey him. Or think about John 14, 15. Jesus tells his disciples, and by way of extension, anyone who believes the gospel. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says in chapter 15, I've loved you first. I've chosen you. Now kids, listen to me for a minute. Think about what it means to obey your parents. You don't obey your parents so that they will love you. You're not trying to earn their love. They loved you before you were even born. You obey them because they love you. And you love them in return. And so you want to obey them. Friends, it's the same way in our relationship with God. We love and we obey because he first loved us us. Because God is faithful, I now have the motivation and the power to walk in obedience. Now, we also need to consider from these constant reminders of the promises of God, how are we reminding ourselves that God is faithful to keep our promises to us? It's a great question to ask. How are you doing at reminding yourself of God's promises? Last month, I I looked up at that little sticker on the inside of my windshield, and I realized I'm about, I'm ashamed to tell you how many miles over I was for an oil change. I was like 3,000 miles over, and I don't mean the sticker, I mean like I already add 3,000, and I was like a few thousand more over that, okay? And I love those stickers, it's great, because they put it right there, and you know, okay, around this date, and around this mileage, I need to go back, and I need to get an oil change. It's a great reminder. Here's the problem. It's only a good reminder if you look at it, which I never do. Friends, we have reminders around us all the time of God's faithfulness, but are we looking to them to be reminded? 
Think of this, what we're doing now, the weekly gathering. We do the same thing every single week intentionally. We come together, we sing the word, we pray the word, we preach the word. We display the word through the Lord's Supper. We declare it to one another so that we can be reminded when you're here, are you taking advantage of prayerfully saying, God, help me to see your simple truths of your faithfulness to me in Christ so that I may leave this place and be equipped to obey. What about this book that you have? Are you spending time daily reading, praying through, meditating on God's promises to you in his word? Are you pursuing relationships with one another, gospel communities, DNAs, where you are reminding each other of who God is, that he is the one who is faithful to you? Friends, we need these reminders. Abram needed them, and so do we. Now, as we move on in chapter 17, we see a very specific way Abram is to obey God. God gives the sign of circumcision to set apart God's people. Look with me at verse 9. He says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now let's just be honest, things just got really weird in Genesis 17 for us in our modern minds, right? Now we've seen, a, we've seen signs given before in Genesis, right? Remember what happened after the flood? God promised that he would not flood the earth again and he gave the sign of a rainbow. Now here... The sign is circumcision, the cutting off of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. And it's given to be performed by God's people as evidence of their participation in this covenant that was established in chapter 15. And so we have to ask the obvious question, why this sign? Why couldn't it be like, can we just wear a funny hat or get our ear pierced or something like that? I think it's a really good question. One, it's important to know that circumcision was not invented here. It, w- it did exist in other cultures around in the ancient Near East. Uh, pagan priests would practice it, but never a, an entire group of people. So why this sign? Well, there's a number of reasons. I just want to consider three briefly. First, the sign is obviously tied to reproduction and offspring. It's tied to the seed. Remember, we've seen this throughout Genesis. From the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. The sign is tied to that continuing seed. Also, this is a sign because every single member, uh, male member of the covenant family, would be circumcised. This was something that was to set God's people apart from surrounding nations. God was building a distinct, unique, holy people. But probably, 
the most important one to consider is the fact that this was a costly and bloody act. Remember what happened in Genesis 15 when God cut a covenant with Abram. The animals died. Blood was everywhere. When, as we continue on in the Old Testament, we'll see the sacrificial system. Animals die. It's a bloody book as we read through the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no removal of sins. And we see all of this bloodiness and all of this cutting and all of this death come to a head as we look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This sign points us to Christ. The one who will be crucified for us. The one who will shed his blood for us and will be cut off so that we may be brought in. So that's why this sign is so important. But then there's another question. Okay, scripture teaches this, this covenant sign does not apply to us today. So then why not? Why, why don't we do this today? Why don't we make this a part of being a member of Seven Mile Road? By the way, I'm really glad uh, that this is the way God planned it. Well, again, Romans chapter 4. If you'll actually, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there because Paul gives very clear explanation on why circumcision is important and he applies it to those of us who are not Jewish and have no need of circumcision. Verse 9, he says, Is this blessing, he's talking about justification, salvation. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abram, Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This is so important. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul says two things here. He makes an argument from order. Abram was already justified before the sign was given. But he also says, listen, essentially he's hinting at, there was a time for this, but you who are Gentiles, that's all of us, we have no need to be circumcised. That time has passed. Those who are a part of the family of Abraham are those who believe the gospel. By now, this was an important argument in the early church, if you read Acts chapter 15, there was a, a big important meeting about this. And part of the difficulty becomes when, if you look at chapter 17, verse 13 says that this will be an everlasting covenant. So you had Jewish Christians who were saying, wait, shouldn't we have other people who come to faith outside of, of Judaism, shouldn't they be circumcised? And Paul and Peter and Barnabas were saying, no, 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 Christ has fulfilled the law. What's everlasting here is not the sign itself, but what it represents. So the church decided in Acts chapter 15 that Christ has fulfilled circumcision with his life and death. 
It's no longer required. The entire book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with this. So then, we have an important question then. What in the world does this mean for us? Well, friends, circumcision points to something deeper. As we read the Old Testament and into the New, it's meant to point to the circumcision of the heart. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Or another verse, Galatians 6.15, it's not on the screen. Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything but a new creation. So if you want to say, what does this have to do with me? The question to ask is this. Has your heart been renewed by the grace of God in the gospel? That's what circumcision points to ultimately. Has God cut away the old by the power of his spirit? Opened your eyes to the truth of his grace that you may repent and turn and believe and be given a new heart and made into a new creation. Have you done that? Has God worked that in you? And if not, friends, let me encourage you. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ has died that you may be made new. But there is also a sign for the New Testament church that in a way parallels circumcision. And it's baptism. So this is another application. As we look at baptism, Jesus commands us, Matthew chapter 28, to go and baptize those who believe. See, baptism is, the, is representative of the, the death and resurrection of Christ. It's an outward picture of an inward reality. When you go down into the water as a believer, you are, it, it's symbolic of you being buried with Christ in his death. And when you come up out of the water, it's symbolic of you being raised to walk in the newness of life. So if you're here and you have believed the gospel, and you say, I'm not really sure about this whole baptism thing, this would be a, a very clear application for you. We'd love to talk more with you about that. So that you can walk in obedience and display that you are a part of the family of God. Now, as we move on and come to the end of chapter 15, we see God promise the birth of Isaac. Look at verse 15. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And so we see here that Abram's not the only one renamed. Sarai is as well. And this one's a little difficult. Translators don't really know. Uh, it seems like Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. Sarai might mean something else, but Sarah certainly means princess. Regardless, it's still God pledging himself, displaying his power, and renaming her. And then as, as Abraham hears this, he falls on his face. Again, remember he's already done that. And he laughs. Now the, the, the big question is, why, why is he laughing? Is this, is this a laugh of unbelief? Like, are you kidding? 
There's no way this can happen, which is what Sarah does in a moment. Or is this some other kind of laughter? And I'd submit to you that Abram actually is, is laughing in reverence and joy here. It's a laughter of faith. And there's two reasons I would say that. First, he falls on his face in reverence of God. It's an act of worship. Second, do you notice that he calls her, he calls Sarai immediately by her new name. He, he, he agrees with God in this renaming of Sarah. And so he's laughing in reverence and joy that God is about to fulfill this incredible promise to him. But then, as Abram, Abraham often does, he tries to give God some advice. He says, God, I have this son named Ishmael. Thank you that Isaac's coming. I'm really pumped about that. But Ishmael's 13. He's a good kid. Why can't he be the child of the promise? And God responds by reminding him that he's the one who's faithful. He's the one who makes promises. That Isaac is going to be born to him. And he gives this child a name, Isaac, which means he laughs. And he gives a timeline, verse 21. This time next year, we're right on the cusp of this fulfillment. Then we're told that when he finishes talking to him, God leaves And Abram goes and immediately obeys God's command of this sign. Look at verse 22, or verse 23. Then Abram took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Immediate obedience flows from the faithfulness of God in Abram's life. If you go back and look through chapter 17, you'll see most of chapter 17 is God saying, I've done this, I will do this, I'm faithful, now Abram, you go obey. The motivation of our obedience is God's faithfulness to us. Now let's spend the rest of our time looking at chapter 18. We see here God's presence assures us of his promises. So God leaves at the end of chapter 17. Abram circumcises his family, his household in obedience. Then chapter 18 picks up and we see God appear again. Look at verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on who these three men are. You remember Pastor Clint last week talking about the angel of the Lord. Some people say it's the angel of the Lord. Probably not. We don't see any of the same language here. Some people say uh, it's, uh, it's a picture of the Trinity. Nope, because it's three different men. I, and, and there, let me just be honest with you. There's part of me that says I have no idea. And then there's part of me, because I have to preach a sermon, that has to say something. And so here's what I'm, here's what I'm going with. I believe this is two angels in the Lord. Just the way they show up as three, the way uh, Abram speaks to one of them and calls him the Lord, the way we're told that the Lord appeared to him, I believe this is two angels and the Lord appearing in some way to Abram to speak to him. But what's so interesting about this is he just spoke to, to Abram in the previous chapter. We've seen him speak to him many times. So why does he show up in this way? 
with two angels and then followed up by a meal. This is a great glimpse into ancient Near Eastern hospitality from Abram. He runs and prepares a meeting. He's, he's hospital to them and they, they share a meal together. And that's so important as we consider the Bible because as we look through the theme of meals in the Bible, they communicate the closeness of relationship between God and his people. We see that in Exodus chapter 24, the covenant with Moses is confirmed and we read in verse 11, they beheld God and they ate and drank. Luke tells us his mission statement for Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Consider what we do each week as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We are remembering what God has instituted the night he was betrayed. This new covenant of relationship with his people. Friends, nothing, you you know this, nothing communicates closeness of relationship like a meal. I think this is why the pandemic has been so hard for many of us because we have missed having people in our homes or being in people's homes and being able to sit around food at the table and talk and laugh and cultivate relationship. And what's happening in chapter 18 is God is showing up in a special way surrounding a meal to assure Abram and Sarah of his presence. Now why would he want to do that? Well, because... He is about to announce Isaac's birth in a special way. Now before Abram was only involved, now we have Sarah involved as well. Look at verse 12. It says, so Sarah laughed. Actually, let's start with verse 11. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So Sarah overhears this promise that within a year Isaac will be born. And she laughs in unbelief. Mingled with sorrow. You almost hear a sigh in her laughter. This is not a punchline to a joke to her. She's not only barren, but she is past the age of being able to have children. It is literally impossible for her to have a child. And so she hears this, and with sorrow and sighing, she wonders, is there any way this is going to happen? And I would ask you, can you, can you relate Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you feel like there is no way I see this happening? It is impossible. Will I I ever have victory over this sin? I've been banging my head against a wall trying to fight this sin for years. There's no way. It's just, it's impossible. Can, Can God really save me? Can he ever save me? Someone who is that much of a sinner? No way. It's impossible. Will my marriage or will this relationship ever be healed? I just see no way this can happen. It's impossible. Will I ever be freed from this anxiety and depression or dark night of the soul? There's just absolutely no way. That's impossible. 
And the Lord responds with a loving rebuke in verse 13 or in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord, Sarah? Now combine that with what we read in 17 verse 1. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why did God wait so long to provide Isaac to display the greatness of his power over and above the inability of sinners like you and me? It wasn't just unlikely now that Sarah and Abram would have a child. It was impossible. Yet God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? God delights to do extraordinary, marvelous things in our lives. Now, please hear me on this. This is not like a prosperity gospel pep talk. Like, just just follow the Lord and he's going to make your bank account bigger and fix everything. No, absolutely not. You, You might live a life in this world of misery and suffering. In fact, that's more likely what we're promised as Christians. But what God will do is be faithful to be your God, to bring you joy forevermore. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So God shows up in this special way with his very presence around a meal to assure Abraham and Sarah of his promises. And friends, he does the same for us. If you're like me, I've been guilty of this before. Maybe you've had the thought like, wouldn't it be great if God appeared to my house and was like, hey, can you make me lunch? Or you think of the disciples walking with Jesus and you say, oh man, wouldn't it be great if we could just walk with Jesus and understand and, and, and be in the presence with Jesus. And I understand that sentiment. Believe me, I do. But do you realize that in the gospel, God has given us something better than a few miraculous appearances. He has given us himself. We are assured of God's promises through Christ. Christ came to assure us that we are his who believe. Christ came and established the new covenant. Christ came and did the impossible by purchasing our salvation and laying down his life for us. And defeating sin and death by rising from the grave. And the good news, Jesus himself says, listen, it's better that I leave John 16, 7, because I will give you the helper, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So friend, Christian, please listen to me. I understand that sometimes it feels like God is distant, but if you are in Christ, he is never nearer to you than he is in this moment. It's not possible until you see him face to face. He dwells in you to assure you of his presence and his promises. And so as we close... I want to consider the words of the Apostle Paul as he sums this up for us in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That is why, through him, that we utter our amen to, the glory, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee of his presence. So as we close, may we 
walk in obedience before God because he has been faithful to us in Christ. May we be assured by his presence and by his word that nothing is too hard for him. Let's pray together.